This is the story of a beautiful place known as the happiest place on earth. And all of its history, its secrets, and its tricks that you may find if your mind believes in design and you allow your heart to believe in magic. Step inside and become a citizen of Disneyland. Greetings, fellow citizens of Disneyland. Bricky here. Today's episode looks at the rich history of Alice in Wonderland, along with my good friend, Jared Mariyama, who's going to sit down and have a conversation with us all about the past, the present, the future, and so many of the details of this special little corner of Fantasyland. Alice's Corner is kind of a land inside of a land, if you will, a land that has as many attractions as Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, New Orleans Square, Avengers Campus, and Critter Country. You didn't really think about Alice being such a player down at the Disneyland Resort, now did you? And the land, the attraction, it's run on a timeline that's been a little bit later than the rest of Fantasyland, always running late, kind of like the film that inspired Alice's presence in the park. But Bricky, it was actually a book first. Nobody reads books. Nobody cares. Every story begins and becomes true when they make a movie about it. It's Alice's Corner, Jared Maruyama, episode 74 of Disneyland for Designers. And I hope each and every single one of you was able to get your magic keys and all the joy that unlocks. Jared, welcome back to Disneyland for Designers. How are you doing, sir? Very good. How are you? It feels like it's been forever. It it has been forever. The world has been buzzing. Everything's been going crazy. And uh, it's been a minute since we got back together to talk about things. But I I just want to start here for you. As somebody who really loves vintage Disney, and you love it in a way a little bit different from me, like I'm a Disney parks guy. And everything I know is kind of through the parks, but you actually are a student of like that first wave of Disney storytellers, creatives, animators, artists, that some of those folks went on to become members of, you know, uh, Walt Disney Imagineering and working on the park. So as somebody who's like really a student of just like old school Disney, where does Alice in Wonderland rank for you? Is it top five, top 15? Do you have a strong attachment to this one? Um, yes and no. Like, it's funny. It's, it's what these kind of questions for, for people who come in it from the art angle or from the animation angle, it's difficult to rank these films. Like they're also, you know, um, they're also their own world and they all have their own history and everything. So it is hard to sort of take them out of context to, to compare, uh, it's apples to oranges in this case. Alice, I will admit, it's not one that I liked as a kid. Uh, The whole thing plays like a bad dream. I think it's frustrating for, for young kids because it's not it's it's not very linear and it's, yeah. kind of, it's tough to to kind of grasp. I think it's more of a film for adults and that, you know, you might watch it casually as a kid and know it. And then I think maybe just over time, as with most things with Disney, you, you grow an affection for it and, and you grow it in like segments for specific characters or songs. And that's kind of how I feel. It's a great um, 
like sample of Mary Blair's work and, and some good character animation and things like that. I think on a whole though, it doesn't hold together for me in the same way a lot of the other uh, favorites of mine do. You bring up a couple good points in that, in that one, Disney movies are, well, the early, well, actually mm -hmm. pretty much the entire run of the company and crazy were so dangerously close to a hundred years of, of yeah. Disney as a company. But you know how when uh, bands put out albums, each album sort of like signifies like a very important chapter in right. Metallica's history. You know, there are mm -hmm. four guys in a van from San Francisco, and then later on they become, you know, commercially viable. And then they get so far commercially viable that they kind of lost a little bit of the magic. Um, Disney's kind of the same way, right? Where like different movies symbolize like different chapters, different eras, not only in who they were as a company, but animation style, the vibes of stories that they were telling. And I think you're right. Like Alice, for me, I've been able to recognize the character, the mm -hmm. Mary Janes, the white stockings, the baby blue dress, you know, the, the chopped bangs and the long hair. Like I've been able to identify her as an icon my entire life. Right. But I don't think I really ever knew what the story was or the different characters. Like, it's so weird how some Disney stuff, the icon is so much bigger than the actual story. And I'm trying to think back in my mind. I know I saw Bambi. I know I saw Dumbo. I know I saw Pinocchio and Snow White. I don't know if anybody ever set me in front of a TV and I ever actually consumed Alice in Wonderland in one sitting as a child. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't think I did either, actually. I, I don't think I even saw it in the theater. I don't think I saw this. I saw this in bits and pieces as a kid. And so I think it always feels like you saw it without having seen it, actually, which is the case with a lot of Disney films, I think, for, for people growing up. And this was one of the first ones that they aired on TV very early on, mm -hmm. which is unusual. It was a highly edited, cut-down version for TV, but still, it, it sort of started that bridge of, like, Disney becoming sort of one with TV and back and forth. And, and here we are back around to it now with, with streaming. Um, but yeah, it, it's the same kind of thing where there's so many of Disney's things in general just get all mixed up into one big stew that's just Disney, right? And you have affection for it in these little chunks and for whatever reasons, like you might like the ride a lot without loving the movie. Yeah. Um, and so it feels like you know Alice without knowing it. Yeah, and I think because the icon, mm -hmm. you know, the actual character is is so well built and, and constructed as well as a lot of the supporting characters yeah. in this journey, like visually, it is a very strong and recognizable movie, but I bet most people that could identify the characters couldn't tell you the relationships and, you know, like everybody knows the rabbit's like horrible at planning his day out, right? Like he's overbooked, <laughs> he's got a lot going on. But how one leads to the other, I'm yeah. not quite sure on. So when Disneyland would open up in 1955, they would use a lot of these icons to, right. to launch the park. And it feels like Alice has been a you know face character in the park from its very beginnings. But when it opened up in the beginning in 55, it would just be the Mad Tea Party, which would be a C ticket. So, you know, it's not a big deal. And right. I think a, a good spot bought to start this conversation about Alice's involvement with the park is if you take the uh, Mad Tea Party, Jared, mm -hmm. and you take away its facade, its storytelling, its soundtrack, and even we're even talking about the early 55 thing, and any other means 
this is a carnival ride. Yep. Right? Straight up carnival ride. They probably ordered this from somebody. They shipped it down. They had their guys paint it and, you know, fabricate the saucer and the cup for you to ride in. But anywhere else, this is a traveling carnival ride. But inside of Disneyland, inside of the story and the icon that is Alice, it becomes like one of the iconic attractions of the entire Disney Parks brand. Exactly. And you look at that first version, and it's so stripped down. Uh, you know, it's completely charming now with the with the redo. But back then, it was really just the cups, you know, <laughs> like, that's it. Just the motif on the cups is really the only thing that feels like it. The rest of it at best is tied into that sort of uh, that theming that was going around Fantasyland when it first opened. Um, so yeah, like, there's very little to even signify that this is Alice other than having to know the uh the motif that's put on the cups so it is it is pretty amazing i can't stand the ride i love to look at it but i I never ride the ride uh it's beautiful but i've never asked the lady for a dance i don't i don't (laughs) i don't want to do it i don't want to be a part of it yeah isn't it kind of fascinating though that when people like because i was just at the park last night with Mm. uh, a family like close family friends from from new york it was their first visit it's a you know husband and wife my age and then two right. little ones and they'd never been to disneyland before and they kept going does this park have the teacups and they didn't ride it but they just wanted to walk by and see it and i think that the teacups and dumbo are probably two of the most like symbolic disneyland disney world disney parks attractions mm-hmm. and it's so funny that they're both just kind of like basic bitch carnival rides yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's for sure. But you look at everything. Uh, I think with the exception of, well, no, I think everything basically is an elevated carnival ride though, right? Yeah. Like you see how much it's the, one, it's just the placement that it's a Disney thing. It's the rest of it is just theming. I mean, there is some, like you look at Peter Pan and the fact that you're kind of flying, that's the big draw for that one. But really you're not doing anything pioneering in the way that we think of it now, where the the ride carriage has to be something technologically advanced and, and things like that. Everything else is pretty much the same. Look at Toad. Toad still looks very much like an old carnival ride with mm-hmm. its like flapping wooden flaps and stuff as opposed to dimensional objects. Uh, definitely in need of a, of a makeover for that one. But yeah, I think they're all kind of like it, especially, I mean, in Fantasyland, even Small World, right? Yeah. Hey, well, it's funny that you bring up... Um toad and how flat it is like most of toad's scenes are you know boards that kind of move around and kind of jumping up a little bit the alice in wonderland attraction originally started out as flat boards Mm -hmm. but through the years they would go in and they would add in actual like 3d models you know like characters in there and then that next wave they would go in with all the light projections that once again has um, reinvented it for more generations and I think sort of a, a telling indicator on Toad's history is Peter Pan got that walkthrough and got characters and a lighting package Snow White did Pinocchio from 83 and Toad from 55 I feel like the future of those two could be in question because they still like Pinocchio still like scary as hell and um toad is still confusing but still very very much of that old set design it'd be interesting to see if those two make it to the 100th anniversary Mm. i 
Okay, so Pinocchio, I think, will. Toad, I think Toad's always on the verge of leaving, no matter <laughs> what. I, I know it's beloved and, and it has a place. And again, like we said before, strictly because nostalgia, strictly because it's been there from the beginning, uh, that it'll be hard to let that one go. And especially now that we don't have it in Magic Kingdom. Um, but I think that one is always... Like if they do a a, a refurb next, it's got to be Pinocchio, right? Wouldn't you imagine sure. it would be Pinocchio before Toad? Um, and so maybe one day they'll just flip a switch and be like, okay, commit to Toad. Toad's not going anywhere, and let's let's give him that one will benefit the most from anything that they do. Yeah, um, I, yeah. I think Pinocchio could get that Alice Snow White Peter mm-hmm. Pan treatment, right? Like, right. Let's, let's brighten it up. Let's move some of the scenes around let's not make it so horrific because <laughs> i mean yeah. this kid i'm just a boy there's a kid <laughs> in a cage and all that stuff you know like uh, suddenly turns into a donkey like it's it's pretty insane so i think that that one can be saved but hear me out on this jared okay. i think toad is the tomorrowland of fantasy land and mm. by that tomorrowland is this huge chunk of land that disney knows is so crazy valuable because it's inside the berm. It's like precious, holy land. And I think the Tomorrowland, which is totally in disarray and nothing matches each other, it's a placeholder for when they have a bigger and better idea. It's operational. It works. People walk through it, whatever. Yep. No reason to rip it apart because what would they put there? Right now, every major property is represented. There's not like a branch of the company that feels underserved. I kind of feel like Mr. Toad is that same thing. We're like, well, we can let it roll for another two yeah. decades until there's a story that is so important that we have to give up because they can't put more land in the, the, the classic 83 fantasy land. Like you can't right. put another thing in there. So it's almost like, eh, this is a placeholder. It's like, the, it's like your website uh, in the mid, uh, the beginning of the 2000s, late 90s, where it was just those two little construction yeah. <laughs> Saw horses, you right, know, website right. to come. It's kind of what I feel like Toad could be. Yeah, no, I agree. And I'm sure there will, something will come along where it's like, oh, they have to do very little change to the ride system and the track and they can just dress it up and then do the, spend the money to do the upgraded sort of animatronics and, and things like that. But, you know, it, it's so, it makes such a difference. Like Alice was already a decent ride and it makes such a difference that they added what they added. So I would love to see them use that technology with Toad. I mean, I would actually be fine if they changed the the IP for that. Um, I, I do like the ride and the, the fact that they use those characters because they are good characters. But um, yeah, I think that one would be the like. I'm surprised it hasn't already. So yeah. well, Toad was almost a Ichabod Crane attraction, mm-hmm. right. and with the popularity, because Halloween wasn't that big back in the '50s, like. Halloween and Christmas has made a major resurgence over the last couple of decades. It'd be interesting if that attraction had gone in a more Halloween friendly theme. I think that maybe its days wouldn't be so numbered just because it could be a big part of seasonal holidays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I, my thought is it's probably it would be a princess thing for some reason. One hundred percent, because it, it just they don't have actually a lot of princess attractions, and I think uh, you know aside from the meet and greets and all that, which are obviously very popular, but um, I think it would be, and and to fit in that sort of village 
vibe and not be like it's um you know one of these more uh, location-based films where it's harder to shoehorn that story into this little town and uh, so whether they go classic like beauty and the beast or something like that or if they go with something new and uh, see yeah I, I think i think you're right too jared because things like beauty and the beast as we've seen over in is that in hong kong or japan that they put in the beauty and the beast dark ride tokyo i think that's in tokyo Tokyo. just throwing names all is is it somewhere in asia jared (laughs) um so the one in tokyo that shows that that property Mm -hmm. is so big that it wouldn't fit in a toad same with frozen like these are flag or a tent pole type um you know entertainment properties so they're too big for it so it's almost like it needs to be like a smaller sleeper hit that they can just kind of like toss in there and and i bet there's probably been a discussion of like is that where coco goes because i feel like Mm -hmm. coco and southern california is a winning combination and uh if Ariel wasn't so popular, that would be the perfect home for Coco over DCA. I was thinking something like Tangled, where it's mm. like this substantial hit for them, but it's not Frozen crazy, you right. know? Um, of course, Frozen too, but I think Frozen is the same thing as, as Beauty and the Beast. It's too big to try to put into a tiny little uh, show building like that. So to me, I think it'd be something like Tangled, where it, it's it's enough and it's a princess and you kind of hit the all the like spots in that and i don't i don't know what the the ride system would be but i feel like big hairbrush as far as, yeah as far as the film goes it, it's the right size for something like that i tell you if it plays that uh your favorite song oh, yeah <laughs> straight tears straight tears never seen the movie ha- right just i know it's about a guy who sells his watch to get a hairbrush and she cuts her hair to buy him a watch i know know that it's it's a tale as old as time get it uh but when that song was part of mickey soundsational and they'd have all the princesses it just like it got me in the disney feels (laughs) got me in the disney feels so moving back over to the um mad tea party it is one of the rare rides that has actually been moved at mm-hmm. Disneyland which is interesting because when you read you know Disney fan forums they'll be like what they should do is they yes. take star tours right they put star tours over in the galaxy's edge now what they need to do then is take Mickey's house and drop that you know and just like like it's Sim City and you can move the pieces and that guy became east coast all of a sudden <laughs> it got more specific it's an east coast <laughs> disney blogger now interesting <laughs> new york mickey says <laughs> but it's it's this idea of like moving things around and it's like in early disneyland yeah. they they could because originally the tea party set where the carousel's at now so mm-hmm. taking a carousel and moving it back you know one slot that's not the most impossible idea. And then getting Dumbo in the right spot is not an impossible idea. Right. But now it is specifically Disneyland is like the theme park equivalent to New York city. Mm-hmm. It's also tight. Every path has been perfectly manicured to lead you to the next thing. Like you just couldn't move anything around without ripping out everything around it because it's all built into one another. Right, right. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the dark rides are, that's why I think the dark rides, you don't change a footprint. You don't, you don't do anything, right? It fits in that box. Yeah, it just fits there. But that's, it's built 
properly for that, I think. Like it is again, just dressing up everything in a different theme. Like we go back to your idea before about having it sort of a, an interchanging thing, you mm -hmm. know, where you get to see multiple stories or that story doesn't stay forever. Something like that would be very exciting. If it was a princess ride, um, that could be very exciting too. Or, or some other way to kind of take that smallness of it and then expand it to be, I don't know, maybe it's a very elaborate meet and greet. <laughs> or something like that, you know, or I don't know, but just that's what I think that space would be ideal for. I mean, I think with the footprint of Disneyland, my idea of doing a ride that's a series of vignettes, mm -hmm. because people are so just fanatic about change at the park, all they would have to do is seasonally or annually or every couple of years just be like, okay, well, you know, we kind of feel like the, the interest on Tangled has died mm -hmm. down. So right. coming this fall, that's now the Coco Room would just load people like mm -hmm. right back in there. And, you know, you take someone like Pixar that is constantly making yep. new stories and they could go, OK, so the brothers of the traveling pants didn't work out. Let's take out the onward scene and let's, you know, add in <laughs> Luca if Suzanne right. Vega happens to have like a hit movie with Disney. <laughs> so... It, it, the idea of the vignettes, I think it works well with our, our park. But I have an image for you over from Yesterland.com, one of my favorite websites. And look at this version of the the teacups with this sort of like bizarro Victorian uh, mm. fence and, and streetlight display around it. Like how un-Alice in Wonderland and Fantasyland does that design look? Yeah, interesting now that even makes it look more carnival-y right more temporary almost than obviously than what we have now but even for that period of fantasy land yeah it looks like something that belongs over in the plaza gardens area which yep. ironically is now an expansion of fantasy land but right. when i when i came across this image here i'm like wow this just looks so unlike the attraction or that part of the park to me yeah, no, completely different. I don't know. That came later, though, right? Like, I don't remember. I think it was just the fence when the park opened, right? The the small sort of gate fence, not the whole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When it there first opened, go. it was just a, a more basic type fence perimeter. That looks so carnival, that yeah, fence. Very carnival. And then I guess in the 70s, they sort of did this more ornate um New Orleans Square type design that just looks <laughs> even more bizarre in front of the old Renaissance Fair version of, of Fantasyland. But in 1983, yeah. it would then move over and Alice's Corner would get established. And, you know, even though that the, the teacups at the time didn't have like a huge tie in with Alice, you, you got to give Alice a bit of props that she's up there with star wars mm -hmm. and marvel as one of the few properties to have more than one attraction themed after the ip so that really gets you up into legend status absolutely i think that's what like it's all timing with this right probably because it was one of the more recent films at the time the park was, was opening and stuff that it became uh sort of a thing like even just the fact that it's sleeping beauty castle and that, you know, we didn't call it Snow White Castle. Why wouldn't it be Snow White Castle? Right, right. <laughs> you know, it's such an iconic thing for the for the studio. They went with their current 
you know, what was in production at the time. The film didn't even come out until after Disneyland opened. So uh, I think that's where Alice lucked out. And I think in a large part, that's what kind of adds to its legacy um, uh, with the film, uh, you know, in addition to what we see here in the parks. When it went over for the 1983, like, revamp, Tony mm-hmm. Baxter-led uh, redesign of Fantasyland, a couple of things that made this attraction get that modern, like, Disney touch to it. They took the teacups and they recessed it down into the ground, mm-hmm. which is so important because when it's standing at you level, yep. if there's people around it, you don't see it. But when yep. you put it down on the ground and you're walking around that corner there going over to Matterhorn Way or, or cutting through Fantasyland, because it's lower, even if there's people standing around, you can always kind of look over those people and see it down in that little area where it's dug mm-hmm. out. With all the lanterns that they put over it, it makes it one of the most beautiful spots in the park at night. And we're talking about a park full of beautiful spots at night. But lowering it down there, putting the proper lighting package over the top of it, and then one of my favorite parts of this attraction is there's that little observation area, right? Mm -hmm. Because they know this makes a lot of people sick. They want to give them a spot to stand while they watch their kids or their loved ones or their best friends out there rotating around. Like I love that it has that little observation area there on the corner and putting this like snug on the corner where it's exposed from two different sides. Then the backside is all hugged by the dark ride and mm-hmm. by the, the shop. You know, Alice even has a shop in that little area. I mean, yep. this is like mini Avengers campus, which is already pretty many. <laughs> so it's a, it's, she's got a lot of footprint here. Yeah, absolutely. It is. It is genius that it's sunk, sunk down because you figure too, like the the joy of that ride of watching that ride, not riding the ride, but right. seeing that ride is the perspective you have of being up and sort of seeing these cups go in and out of each other like that. Uh, whereas if you were more ground level, you would just see that sort of one layer of cup as opposed to really getting that um, not overhead perspective, but a higher up perspective to see those things uh, moving around. And yeah, it is. It is. It looks like a fun ride when you watch it. I don't want to ride it, but it looks like a, an appealing fun ride. And, and like you said, um, especially at night. Once it's lit up at night, it's a completely different feel to during the day. Yeah, it, it is just such a like a, a beautiful spot. And you know, Tony Baxter uh, went into what I would refer to as sort of like the the bridge of old Disneyland to new Disneyland. Right? Like mm-hmm. he came in standing on the shoulders of giants kind of created that transitional moment for now we don't really know the names of the imagineers that work on things he's sort of that right. last chapter of like uh, did i ever tell you the story of tony baxter and how he made <laughs> big thunder mountain but one of the things that he really worked with as he was working into a park that was already hustling bustling well developed is you know his use of you know the ground level going subterranean and alice is a perfect example of no you put the ride down so as people walk by they can look over and see it Mm -hmm. and another example of that is his use of the where the baseline of the ground is for big thunder mountain you know big thunder mountain having the queue where you can't see it when you're walking by it makes the mountain feel so much bigger yeah that there's not you know 300, 400, 500 people stand around the base of it because you go, well, all those people are on average five and a half feet, so that mountain's not that tall. But when you go into Big Thunder, the first thing you do is you start going down below 
You don't see Rainbow Ridge. You don't see any of that stuff. You mm-hmm. just see an epic mountain up on a man-made hill. And uh, that that idea of, but we're going to put this below where you can't see it, genius for an attraction that's got an outdoor queue. Yeah, for sure. The other thing, too, with this ride is a lot of the other iterations of this app, I don't know if it's all of them, have a covering. Like, you know, it's under yep. a canopy of some sort. And it's amazing what a different feeling that presents. Still basically the same ride and the lighting is similar and all that, but um, really just takes a, a very different feel to the whole thing as opposed to just being sort of open air. And I that's problematic, obviously, in the rain and all of that, but it looks so good the way it is here in Disneyland. And it has that good small size to it and you know you add a few more cups and it's gonna get too big but to fit it like this in such a garden type setting right yeah. there on the corner it's just perfect yeah you bring up an excellent point because when i saw the sister attraction to this over in paris mm-hmm. it has this big beautiful like glass mezzanine over the top of it right and it looks like uh the the the, the style guide from that was something that, that they wanted to put over to where galaxy's edge is built when that was going to be Mm. help me out what was that going to be called i can't think of the name but off the top of my mind but that sort of steampunk land that was never built that the the name is um escaping me right now because i got podcast brain but <laughs> that glass mezzanine as beautiful as it is it it definitely like pushes it inside of a container right and the fact that the California one is the only one that's open air and not only says hey rest of the world we have perfect weather right. but it just adds to sort of that cuteness and that storybook part of, of Disneyland that, that we all love so much. So the, now moving over to the dark ride, which uh, opened up June 14th, 1958, three years into Disneyland being open. This at the time symbolized uh, a very rare thing at the time of the park, an attraction that was both indoors and outdoors. Mm-hmm. And even though that that was rare at the time because it only existed with Mine Train through Nature's Wonderland and uh, you know the submarine voyage that would be coming, this is now kind of a, a staple of Disneyland storytelling. We see it with Splash Mountain and Big Thunder Mountain, both from Tony Baxter, but we'd also see that go with the modern wave of the last two big e-tickets. Uh, Radiator Racers takes you to scene one outdoors. A dark story, uh, a dark ride part of the story in scene or act two. And then act three, the big reveal, the race takes you back outdoors. And Rise of the Resistance also has outdoor and indoor components. So this became one of their tricks of changing your environment obviously will change all of your senses not only with your eyes adjusting to light but you know feeling the breeze of being outside of the sun of being outside to being put into air conditioning and taken back out like it just kind of jars your human yeah absolutely great use of space great great way to sort of show a little bit of the ride on the outside too to sort of lure you in and add to the you know the outdoor setting of it without just making it landscaping or something or an elaborate sign or queue Um, because there's really nothing to the queue here never has been it's always been about this ride but um yeah this one has seen so many changes over the years too just like a lot of fantasy land but it's been like an interesting history of, of changes to you know just little things from adding the railings and all that up to the more recent upgrade well if you look back at the original 58 version when mm-hmm. there were not many concerns about rules or safety right. riding the vine from the top deck to the lower loading deck uh, on the ground level like it was 
the symbol of the ride because like actually the vine was this die cut track that you would ride mm-hmm. on and as you said later on they would end up putting a base on each side of the line the vine and then they would end up adding in railings but when you look back at this original version it looks like such an epic journey because it's just a caterpillar riding around a a die cut vine that has (laughs) nothing on either side of it right right yeah now it's pretty yeah it made such a big difference too when they changed it because it did feel like you couldn't see the bottom of it when you, you couldn't see the track really well on the sides when you were riding it so it did feel like you know you might go off the edge um so yeah i thought it was a, for a kid's ride like this for a dark ride it was pretty exciting yeah and then in 84 uh that's when they started to put like dimensional characters in there mm-hmm. and that's also when tony baxter got a hold of it and would rearrange some of the show scenes and and uh add in that last part of the mm-hmm. unbirthday and all of that and make room for uh the queen and all that stuff so it's it's interesting to me that you know they can take these attractions and like you said you're not getting any more footprint it's what right. can we build inside of this footprint and i know you haven't had the opportunity yet to uh ride the the refurbished snow white but right, right. it is phenomenal jared how much more storytelling they wedged into that little building and yeah. how it now actually makes sense and when you think about the magic trick of more story in the same amount of space it, it, a lot of editing and you know as an artist editing your work can sometimes be the hardest part of the job for sure yeah no i can't wait to see it i'm very excited about it but that's what i love there's like a puzzle aspect of the refurbishes on these rides, right? Like you're not, you don't get to just go crazy. You, you have to sort of be clever and reuse the space and not change things too much. Though this Alice ride did get whole scenes taken out, whole scenes added and things like that. So it is a little bit, a little bit different, but probably closer to what we see with Snow White, you know, what's happening with Snow White. Cause I think it was a similar thing too, where Alice really wasn't in the ride until later, mm. um, where it's supposed to be your Alice going through the thing and not that you would see her in the ride. Which I get that from a like creative right. perspective, but I definitely understand why people in the 60s or 50s were like, wait a minute, says Snow White on the sign. Never yeah. saw her once. What's exactly. going on here? I need a refund. Yeah, it's kind of neat though, right? It's almost consistent with all of Disney. Like the storytelling was a thing. Now, maybe that wasn't something that was clear and people weren't as in tune to that then um but yeah i I think it's great that they had that philosophy of because they probably were thinking like well no alice is out here yeah she's not in there so yeah i mean it's it's a weird consistency thing where they have to kind of break their own rules just because it's like well we better we better put them in there as far as dark rides go though um i'd have to say that once they added in the digital projections and you know a little bit of like video board type stuff Mm -hmm. i think that this is my favorite fantasyland dark ride just because there's so many scenes you move so fast and it it's so creative in the way that you know the chest iron cat disappears Mm -hmm. and you know the who uh you and like how the smoke is projected next to whatever that dude's name is i think it's like steve the caterpillar steve Um, kids love steve they do but i don't know i i just find this one feels like the most epic journey now of course peter pan has the highest level of magic 
but it's just you're in it and out of it so quickly. This yes. one does actually feel like a bit of an epic journey. And if you can time it just right, when you hit that exterior and there's a parade going by and a yep. monorail going by and you hear, you know, the Matterhorn echoing off, like it's just that Disney layering on top of layering that we get to take full advantage of by having the smallest park be our home park. Yeah, I agree. It's it's I think it's the perfect one. Like it combines the new technology with the nostalgia. It didn't change too much where it's like um where it feels like oh we've completely updated the old thing. Though they have, it still feels like small enough and charming enough um that it maintains like to me, yeah, I would point to that as probably the perfect the perfect dark ride. And it's not even that Alice is my favorite uh, you know, film, but uh, what they did with the ride is is pretty perfect. Yeah, I would agree. Hey friends, I hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode about Alice in Wonderland and her inspiration and influence inside of the walls of Disneyland for its complete history. If you'd like to hear part two, where we get into talking to Jared about what's been going on in his art career and different topics all around the Disneyland universe, please consider becoming a member of club1313.com, which is how I'm able to put up one podcast each and every week and several videos every week over on YouTube. I have very, very small numbers on social media. So the only way that any of this is made possible is by my members of Club 1313. And one of the many rewards they get on top of bonus content and meetups with everybody in the club is we have an amazing discord server it's private and it's all about disneyland so if you're always looking to talk about the park and sick of people rolling their eyes at you when you do this is a spot where you're always welcome to talk about disneyland whenever you want because that's what everybody else there wants to hear and talk all about sign up today at club 1313.com where you can hear the second part of today's episode where we have over a half an hour more of conversation just waiting for you thanks uncle larry for shaking your collar right in that spot waiting for you inside of club 1313 it begins right now and if this is where we have to part ways and say goodbye friend thank you so much for listening to today's episode Right, let's let's switch gears let's get into some of the things that maybe could have happened with it and some of the bizarre sort of pieces of its history some of the fun facts and also talk about a couple of things that are going on in the disney world not the park but the over sphere the of yeah, disney very good <laughs> and also here are a couple of things that are going on with you and your always busy career uh so let's start here so many attractions that we know as rides were almost walkthroughs. Right. And it's like, there's this other version of Disneyland where you just would been walking all day and walking through everything. I say to that, thank God Walt Disney went out to the world's fair in 64 and saw the reaction to Abraham Lincoln and called back to, to Anaheim and says, Whoa, stop the construction on pirates we can do better. Like, thank God that when they got pirates going, they said with the haunted mansion, we can do better. Like some of the most classic rides like Alice, we're just going to be a <laughs> walk through it and see it. And sleeping beauty's castles that way. And I don't think that that's 
anybody's favorite experience at the park. I would almost put dollars to donuts that a lot of people have never experienced that. And people that are visiting, you know, for their first through third time might not even know that exists. Like, Jared, I know that you and I are artists and we've shown in museums and we love galleries and we love being in that art environment. But Disneyland is all about like getting on this bizarre vehicle going through all these perfectly curated scenes where your head is always like juxtaposition to see what you're supposed to see. Like, are you with me that we dodged a lot of bullets by having some of these rides not be walkthroughs? <laughs> it seemed inevitable that it would change if it was, right? Yeah. Um, but now, like with the... Um I think of like the cues now, how the cues have become also ah, so much more elaborate. Good point. To me, that feels like uh, the walkthrough portion uh, of everything. Like at Star Wars, just like with Star Wars, Indiana Jones, yeah. and all of those other things. I would like to see more of that, where you do get a, like, even if it was something like Alice, where you get a walkthrough portion. Um, you know, again, it, it's the the battle for space, right? But yeah, um, you can't do it probably with something like this, but as as we see with something like, I mean, even the little mermaid didn't get a great cue like you do in Walt, uh, in magic kingdom where they have a very elaborate cue for little mermaid, where we have just sort of this, um, building facade front. That yeah. But at least there's in. shells in the ground. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, very pretty, very nice looking and stuff like that, but not as interactive as we've seen in some of these other things. So that's what I think of in terms of walkthrough things, which, um, for a whole attraction walking through all the pirates, I, I can't even conceive of how that would go, especially now with the way people are about photos and touching things. Oh, and people would, would have be been a nightmare. And, yeah, it'd be broken. Everything would be broken. Well, the um, idea of the Omnimover came about on like, if we have people walk through a haunted mansion, right? how will we time all yep. these magic tricks so that people are in the room at the proper time, but also more importantly, they leave at yep. a proper time. And, and you bring up a good point. Like pacing people is like herding cats but it's made even more complicated the fact that everybody's a star everybody has a phone everybody's trying to you know make content inside of the park so it would just be like i just want to get out of this pirate's lair but these girls need to do act 12 on their tiktok video and i don't <laughs> want to get in the tiktok video so i feel like i'm held hostage in this spot of the attraction yeah um, something interesting too about the Alice Dark Ride, since it would get constructed not too long after the movie was made, they were able to get the creators that worked on the film, Ken Anderson, Mary Blair, Claude Coates, John Hench, like they were able to get that dream team to touch the 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 attraction that they had just built a movie for. And it's interesting to think that that was a time period in you know, the park and the film where you could get that same creative crew that just mm -hmm. made the movie to come over and work on the attraction. Yeah, no, definitely. Especially with something like this where the look is so distinct. And there are elements of here where you start to see like, it's surprising that in some cases they didn't hew closer to the film. There was like a more relaxed approach back yeah. then to all of this. Like, well, Alice was in flowers, so we'll do some flowers. Yeah. Uh, now everything has to be like, no, that's not what the flowers look like in the film. Right. And, you know, they weren't like this. And so there was a lot of little nice touches where it was sort of like, um, 
I don't know, it's almost like illustrating a book of the film where you're not doing an exact representation of the film, you're doing an interpretation of it. Mm. So it's nice to see some of those touches in some of these rides. And I think we're seeing a lot of that go away as we as we refurbish these things, um, which is fine. It it's, speaks to today's mentality about a lot of that stuff. But to have these filmmakers and these artists working on the ride and bringing that stuff to the dimensional attractions, yeah, I think that's that's pretty amazing. And and I think we're seeing more of that now too, where, where the filmmakers get involved. Yeah, when you have uh, been a professional illustrator like you and I, you get notes back. Oh, <laughs> you know, you'll get the drawing over yours. Like actually Mickey Mouse's nose goes at this angle right. when they're, you know, like like they are so specific about is the, the is it on character is everything exactly right. where it's supposed to be and you're right there is kind of like it's almost like the attraction is an animated version of the cartoon mm-hmm. which is which is really wild uh, something that was brought to my attention and I've had a hard time not thinking about this the new web slingers the scenes that we go through are animated it very much looks like a video game mm-hmm. and when you're on the millennium falcon smugglers run it very much too also looks like a video game and somebody had brought up disney has the money and they've proven they could do this before with making all of these scenes look real in the films you bringing up this moment of like well alice didn't exactly look like the film kind of makes me think about how some of these action rides like everything around us has been built like the Millennium Falcon is a one to one replica of the Millennium Falcon. Mm-hmm. Yet when we go to fly it, we're not flying through a real world. We're flying through a video game illustrated world. I, I would love to know on an attraction like that why they didn't say, all right, let's shoot the ride. Like, let's shoot it like we would a scene in one of the films, you know, mm-hmm. let's.